Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. On today's podcast, former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall on what's going to happen now with the Conservative Party of Canada, with Andrew Scheer stepping down. And even though the former Premier said he has no interest in running for the leadership of the party, I asked him about it anyway. John Zogby, famous U.S. pollster and opinion writer for major publications on the Donald Trump impeachment. You'll hear that. Jermaine Belzeal from the Montreal Economic Institute telling us again that Quebecers prefer oil from Western Canada and that they prefer pipelines over any other means of transportation, no matter what the Premier of Quebec or the Prime Minister of Canada may say. Also, Reinhardt, who joined us from London, Ontario, lived homeless for 18 months. The circumstances under which he became homeless, you will want to hear. And remember, we live in a country where 48% of the population is within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. Michael Taub with us as well, former Stephen Harper speechwriter on, again, the Conservative Party of Canada and how they will move forward. And has Justin Trudeau at least partially abdicated his responsibility as Prime Minister? That's on today's podcast. Why are you not interested in contesting the leadership of the Conservative Party of Canada? You know that Conservative voters across this country would be very keenly interested in you running and would look forward to you challenging Justin Trudeau in the next federal election. You said no. Why? Well, Roy, first of all, thank you uh, for the question, and thanks to the folks out there who have sent uh, uh, encouragements for me to consider running. I appreciate that. It's an honor to be thought of as someone that could perhaps contribute at that level, so certainly grateful. But, you know, I was 18 years in elected politics, and Tammy and I, we just had, we've we've decided that chapter in our life is, is over, and, uh, and uh, I think there are great people out there that can do the job. Uh, there are some changes, I think, that are needed, and uh, and so a leadership change affords that opportunity for the Conservatives, but I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing here of late, which is still to be involved in political issues and commenting on them where I can if there's any interest. Uh, I write every now and then in the National Post and do some public presentations, and I have my social media feed. I'm, I'm, I care about the issues as much as ever. Uh, I just want to approach them from a different platform, I guess, if you will, and uh, and elected politics is not uh, is not that platform. Now, you've expressed, uh, I hope you change your mind, but I, it doesn't sound like you're going to. Uh, you've expressed support for Ronna Ambrose running, and Miss Ambrose is well-liked, very respected. I like her for whatever that may be worth. What does Ronna Ambrose, or whoever the eventual leader of the Conservative Party of Canada turns out to be, what does that person have to do differently to the course charted for the party prior to and during the October election campaign. What do they have to do differently? Well, I did throw Rona's name out there and suggest that folks consider her for this position, Roy, because I think, I mean, for me, she checks a lot of boxes. And I've heard some conservatives say, and I've seen the commentary on social media, on Twitter, well, that person should not come from the West because we've had Harper was from Calgary and she was from Regina. I'm of a different view there. I think a Western voice is still important because... For practical reasons, actually, uh, practical electoral reasons, we have, as you know, Roy, because uh, you've canvassed the issues well over the last months and even years, we have Western alienation that has uh, strengthened, certainly, since the federal election. It was already strong going into it. It was at a higher level uh, than it was during the NEP years of the uh, the first Trudeau. So uh, so now there's talk, of course, of a federal party, a Wexit party, uh, and and I think it's going to be important to not split the vote in the next election. Obviously, I think change is good for the country. And if change is going to happen, the conservative vote, small-c conservative vote, free enterprise vote across the country has to be efficient and, and, and focused. And I, I think uh, Rana's candidate or candidacy uh, precludes somewhat the, uh, or is a, is a great prescription against vote splitting uh, west if there's some sort of a, a federal party. Um, I also think Ronna, Ronna, her candidacy gives us a chance to return to focus on economic issues. For whatever reason, and I don't think this is Andrew Shear's fault, but for whatever reason, the focus during the campaign, and even since the campaign, has been on social conservative issues. Um, we're successful when we focus on the economy. 
that's the formula we try to uh, try to remember uh, during my time in government in Saskatchewan. That um, that it really is, as James Carville reminded his candidate Bill Clinton, it really is the economy, stupid. It's the economy that pays for everything, every quality of life that we want in our country is directly or indirectly supported by a strong economy. And typically conservatives, when, when the economy is at the top of the ballot, they succeed. So I think Ronna gives us a chance to take the focus away from some of that other, those other issues onto an area where conservatives can be successful. The uh, Liberals are clearly shoring up the chaotic mess they entered the October campaign uh, with um, as an unethically challenged and uh, just inept Justin Trudeau, but now he's handed off much of what should be his responsibility package to his now Deputy Prime Minister, Christian Freeland. What do you make of that? Well, I think we had a Deputy Prime Minister before that was doing a lot of the work, and his name, I won't, maybe I shouldn't mention his name, and his initials are Gerald Butts, uh, and he was, I think, doing a lot of that work prior uh, prior to uh, his departure from government in the, in the wake of the SNC-Lavalin scandal. Uh, and so now I think really this is just, a, the, I think, the next iteration of uh, of the Trudeau government deputizing somebody who is doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And, you know, she immediately came out west after receiving her post as deputy prime minister and being asked by the prime minister to focus on Western issues uh, and issues of unity. And to her credit, she came immediately and I think said all the right things. Here's the, here's the, uh, the point, Roy. The point won't be uh, uh, meetings and discussions and prayer, you know, thoughts and prayers. The point's going to be action. Thanks for joining us. WorkingCanadians.ca, Catherine Swift. We'll talk again. Reasonable requests made that don't require messing with the Constitution. You know, changes to C-69, an equalization rebate as is allowed by the formula. Um, These specific and pragmatic requests have been made. And if if there's no response from the federal government, it doesn't matter who Trudeau appoints. Right. Uh, there's going to continue to be issues here. Okay. Premier, it's good talking to you always. I'll always call you Premier. You've, you've earned that. And, uh, and, and good luck to your son's career. I'm looking for great things from him. And if you change your mind about running for the Conservative Party, will you please let me know? <laughs> You're very kind. Thanks for the opportunity. All right. Thank right. you. Brad Wall, can't squeeze it out of him. Mr. Schiff, he appeared on uh, ABC's This Week. Today, warning that uh, Donald Trump poses a, quote, clear and present danger to democracy and Reuters reports, top Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives made a last-minute pitch to Republicans on Sunday, that would be, of course, today, for why they should put aside partisanship and vote to impeach President Donald Trump. And, of course, the Republicans are going to turn around and say to the Democrats, why don't you put aside partisanship? And uh, don't go forward with what they're describing as a farce. So it is going to go forward where it leads. Who knows? Um, well, it probably will not lead uh, to a, well, I should say, probably. How can you, can you put these two words together, John Zogby? Probably, definitely? Uh, we, know, we do know where it's going. Um, the, the House will vote to impeach. And the Senate, as quickly as possible, will vote to uh, dismiss or to have a trial and, and quit. And then we will end up right where we were uh, before with uh, a president um, who most, including me, consider probably the worst man um, ever to occupy the White House, um, but one who will also probably go on to be reelected uh and and democrats will have set for themselves a trap um that they are walking right into uh meaning that through all of this the the case has not been made or been able to be made that the president um, uh, deserves to be removed from office and so you ask yourself the question, why did we bother going through it? I've got an op-ed piece coming out on Tuesday trying to answer some of those questions myself, and I'm happy to preview some of those answers. Sure, absolutely. And let me introduce yeah. you now, John. I mean, Democrats will say um, this is based on principle, you know, and, but then you have to wonder where, where was their principle when their guy, President Bill Clinton, um, 
had was engaging in sex with an intern who was in his employ and lied to a grand jury uh, and to the American people about it. You know, principle is supposed to be universal and indivisible. Um, you know, where was principle when the at the time the Senate Minority Leader, who's now the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell, said our only task here in Congress is to make sure that the President of the United States at that time, Barack Obama, does not get another term. Um, so principle is, 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 is not the factor. Well, what about the threat to democracy? We have the threat to democracy when we don't recognize the legitimacy of an election. You know, for good or for evil, uh, you know where I lean, um, Donald Trump was elected. Democrats have to get over the fact that he he was elected, and there hasn't been any credible proof that Russian involvement or tampering with machines or whatever you want to call it had anything to do really with electing him to the White House. The Democrats nominated a, a damaged person. Mm -hmm. And so um, why bother going through this? I think, I'm talking a lot, I know, but I think that the House should censure the president. That's only been used once. In other words, uh, condemn him uh, and then move on, pass some legislation uh, that really matters for this country. Watch the Senate not even vote on that legislation, but then wage a campaign to try to defeat Donald Trump. That's what it's supposed to be about. So I should get around to introducing you. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, it's okay. No, no. I I just put that's two words. I know. I put two words together that really don't work, and that's what I asked you about. I put probably, definitely together, and you, that sounds too political. John Zogby, famed U.S. pollster, the Zogby poll, and head of John Zogby Strategies, op-ed writer for major U.S. publications, and the author of Me, We Are Many, We Are One. Uh, just recently returned from Paris, where he was honored by the French Institute of International Relations, was keynote speaker for the third year, and participated on the lead panel. John is very generous to us with his time. Yesterday, by the way, at this time, I was speaking with Doug Weed, the author of Inside uh, the Trump White House, who had access to uh, to Donald Trump. Um, so, uh, yeah, obviously, I mean, John, you, you've nailed it as far as what's going to happen is concerned. And I suspect you're right. It's going to turn out this is all going to backfire on the Democrats because they haven't been able to get over 2016. They haven't had a strategy, stra a strategy for 2020 other than being angry. And, uh, and Donald Trump will most likely take advantage of it and be reelected next November. But there's, there's a story today out as well, not just today. It's been out for a couple of days. And that is that there may be some uh, friction between the White House and the Senate, uh -huh. uh, the Republican senators, on the impeachment trial, although GOP leader Mitch McConnell has said the Senate Republicans will take their cue from President Trump. What do you think is going on there? Well, you know, just because they're on the same side uh, and both need each other, the White House and the Senate, uh, doesn't mean they love each other. Uh, Mitch McConnell's a very difficult person, very difficult to get along with, um, ditto for the president, um, and they're stuck with each other. But, you know, yeah, sure, what the president wants to do is just get the charges dismissed and have this whole process called a farce. It looks like what McConnell wants to do is go through as brief a trial as possible and acquit the president. Now, you know, again, we sort of end up the same place. Mm -hmm. um, Democrats for removal, Republicans against removal. So this is now down to, I think, personalities. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Pretty much. Let me ask you, uh, in the minute and a half we have left, there's a lot of unhappiness internationally. Wherever we look in the globe, people are at one another's metaphoric throats, and sometimes quite literally at one another's throats. What's going on? How do you assess what's happening? It's a, a major system-wide failure. Um, these are changes that have been taking place for hundreds of years, a, a changeover from uh, one kind of society to another kind of society. 
and what was introduced in the uh, the uh, this evolving new society were uh, democratic institutions and uh, other infrastructure to serve uh, capitalism, an, an economic system. But we're getting to a point right now where capitalism, uh, lots of opportunities and benefits to people, but you know, tens of millions of victims. Um, and people who don't see a future or an opportunity and who are saying that this system just doesn't work anymore. Uh, political party system doesn't work. Um, uh, traditional media is not working. Church uh, establishments aren't working. We're, we're at really at a major tipping point, and we're seeing it in the streets of Beirut and Tehran uh, and Toronto and... You, you, probably, you probably saw it in Paris last week. Oh, I did, and I heard it. Uh, we had a major transit strike in Paris. Paris was a, a ghost town last, last Friday. Uh, people stayed home because there, there wasn't public yeah. transportation. The trains weren't running, uh, and there were folks shouting in the streets. It's everywhere. It really is everywhere. Wherever you look on the, on the, on, on the global map, it's, mm-hmm. There's something going on. There's anger, there's demonstrations, there's frustration, there's threats, there's government, uh, you know, d- pounding people and people going after governments. It's, it's a very wobbly, uncertain time we're living in. I uh, hope we come out of this in, in reasonable shape. John, it's always great talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today. Roy, good to talk to you. Thanks. John Zogby um, is our guest, and we love talking to John. His book is We Are Many, We Are One. Uh, that theory is going to be tested or is being tested now. If you've been with us in the last year, when we've talked about the polling that was done for the MEI a year ago on the same questions, then you will not be surprised at what you're about to hear. If you're not aware of it, then you may very well be surprised. Germain Belzile joins us from the Montreal Economic Institute. Germain, good to have you back on the program. I'm very happy to be here again. So uh, the message in 2018 was very clear from Quebecers. We'd love to have our own oil, our own sources for oil, but if we can't have that, then where we want our oil from is Western Canada, and uh, that's our preference by a wide margin. And if it comes to transportation of oil, our primary um, uh, favorite is pipelines far ahead of tankers or trains. So please tell us how 2019 turned out. Well, uh, there's not much difference. In fact, uh, people's um, opinions are pretty stable uh, over time. So uh, 45% of Quebecers still believe that we should develop our own uh, supply of oil if we can, if it's possible. Uh, 26% think think we should import oil. And 28%, well... uh, it's uh, too difficult a question for them. And I think uh, these are probably the uh, environmentalists who uh, uh, can't figure out how to not consume oil and continue living uh, in, a, in an advanced country. So the decision that the, the, the Quebecers put forward, the, 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 the favorite options are, again, 65% prefer oil imported uh, into Quebec from Western Canada, 65%. It's a big number. It's very big, and it was exactly the same number last year. Right. Uh, and uh, the closest country last year was uh, the U.S. at 7%, and now it's the uh, U.S. again at, at 15%. So, uh, in fact, uh, some undecided people decided that they, they preferred the U.S. to uh, over nothing. But, uh, but otherwise, uh, we're stable at, at, at two, two-thirds of the people who think that uh, Western Canada should be our supplier. Okay, now pipelines. This is the big issue in this country and has been a big issue. And, uh, and Premier Legault has said, he's talked about dirty oil in Alberta, and he said that pipelines are not going to cross, new pipelines are not going to cross the territory of the province of Quebec. He's been supported in that by Prime Minister Trudeau, and he's been supported in that as well by the leader of the federal New Democrats. Uh, Quebecers are saying, no, we don't agree with politicians. We are saying by 50% majority, and it's significant when you look at the comparison with, uh, with, with other options. We're saying by 50%, we want pipelines. Exactly. In fact, uh, um, uh, if you look at all the other options, which are train, tanker, truck, sh- uh, and ship, 
Well, the, the total of them doesn't go near, uh, in fact, the total for pipelines at, at uh, 50% for Canada and a little less than 50% for, for Quebec. And don't forget that in, in, we, in Quebec, we, we had uh, Lac Mégantic. Uh, so, uh, yes. in fact, we, I think we, we know now that uh, trains are not as safe as pipelines. When I lived in Quebec, I didn't live very far from Lac Mégantic. So uh, I did go there shortly after the disaster and it was it was horrific, horrific to see. And one of the things I was thinking about um, was was pipelines, as I saw uh, what had happened, Germain. It was absolutely, absolutely horrific. Well, forty-seven people uh, yes. roasted alive, in fact. So yes, it's, uh, yes. It's horrible. Now, when it comes to the issue of climate change, you asked Quebecers about that. What are, what what did you hear? I find the numbers particularly interesting. Tell our listeners what you heard. Well, um, uh, first of all, we we polled uh, all Canadians and Quebecers among them on the important issues. And we asked them, uh, tell us which is the number one issue in your mind and the top three issues. Well, uh, health care came up on, on top with 77% of the people saying that it was uh, the most important uh, issue. Economy and jobs came second at 60, and climate change came third at, at 51%. Uh, among the three issues, uh, important issues, and 20% of the people uh, named climate change as the most important uh, issue uh, overall. So uh, let's not uh, get rid of all the other problems and only focus on climate change. I think that's what Canadians and Quebecers are telling us right now. Yet the majority said, what about about being willing to spend uh, more to reduce greenhouse gas emissions? What did they say? That's that's a number that we've polled before, and it's pretty stable. In fact, uh, 63% of uh, of Canadians Canadians are uh, uh, e- either unable or unwilling to pay more, a cent more. And if you add people who are willing to pay from $1 to $100 to, uh, to fight uh, GHG emissions, well, you, you're up to 85% that are, are, are not willing to pay more than $100 uh, for on, on this issue. So uh, it's, not, it's not that significant for them. And I think that goes a long way to explain what's, what's happened at COP25 yeah. uh, yesterday and today. Uh, in fact, politicians are not crazy, and they realize that people uh, are, are not okay with spending huge amounts of money that come from their pockets on fighting climate change. Well, you know, again, we've been talking about about on this program about other polling that was done by Ipsos, which shows that 48% of people in this country, 48%, are within $200 of not being able to pay their bills. So people are living very close to the margin. So you may feel, and obviously people do feel, and strongly, that climate change is significantly important. But then when you say you're going to have to spend significantly more money to, to accomplish what, uh, what, what, you know, what the goal is, then folks get pragmatic. They look at their wallets. They look at their bank balances. They look at what's left on their credit cards, and they say, can't do it. Exactly. And in fact, I, I believe that uh, some, a lot of polling and research has been done also on, the, uh, uh, on how um, uh, people, uh, how, how they feel about government promises. Uh, uh, a lot of people believe that, in fact, if you impose a new um, uh, carbon tax, uh, it's going to be uh, above, uh, above and over what they already pay. So if governments were to uh, assure people and made them really believe that, that uh, they would decrease the overall tax burden and simply replace other taxes by a carbon tax, well, you'd get more people in favor, probably. But for the moment, uh, the people have no confidence and promises uh, of the governments that tell them, well, no, no, it's going to be uh, a tax that uh, will not uh, increase your overall uh, 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 taxing um, uh, uh, load. And so uh, that's, I think it goes a long way in explaining why people are, are not at all in favor of, uh, uh, of different carbon taxes. Yeah. So let me go back to, again, to your polling, Montreal Economic Institute polling, on the issue of, uh, of, of oil. Overwhelming majority of Quebecers, 65%, prefer for the oil imported to Quebec to come from Western Canada versus just 13% who prefer American oil and 5% who prefer oil from another country. Nearly twice as many Quebecers, 45%, want their province to develop its own oil resources rather than continuing to import. But when it comes to transporting oil, and it has to be done, 50%, is this 50% of Quebecers or 50% of Canadians? It's Canadians. Uh, in Quebec, it's a little less than that. Okay. So, so, but it's still a strong majority 
uh, oh, yeah. who prefer the pipeline over any other option. In fact, in, uh, for, uh, I have the Canadian figures right in front of me. So it's 50% that prefer pipeline. Right. The pipelines, 27% will not answer. So the rest is, uh, is uh, trains plus ship and tankers. So that's uh, 18, 22%, in fact, favor uh, another option in, in total. So pipelines are, are seen as uh, safest and uh, the best way of transporting oil. It's, uh, it's that simple. Yeah, I mean, so, so who's out of step here? We have Mr. Legault saying no pipelines, Mr. Trudeau saying that he will respect a provincial government saying no pipelines. And, and if I remember correctly, the last polling showed that a significant majority of people who voted for Francois Legault and the CAC actually supported pipelines. You're right. Um, I think that um, Mr. Legault looks at the polls a lot. And um, he's afraid of losing support uh, if he does anything in this area. So it's, uh, I think it's easy for him to burnish his uh, uh, green kid credentials, not by increasing carbon taxes, because this would be unpopular, uh, but by simply saying we will not uh, accept pipelines. So this uh, doesn't cost him anything, and it's, uh, it's easy to do. I think that if we had good projects, which, uh, by which I mean projects that bring pipelines uh, uh, far from uh, inhabited areas, so, for example, uh, Energy East were, were, was going uh, just about through Montreal, in fact. That was a very bad idea. Uh, if, you, uh, uh, if you had pipelines farther north in, uh, in the province, in, the, in areas where people live out of resources, well, I think this, uh, would, this uh, would work. And by the way, at the moment, there's a big project for liquid natural gas, a nickel, literal, uh, natural gas pipeline leading to a liquid natural gas plant uh, in the, um, uh, the, the Saguenay uh, River uh, uh, and the, uh, uh, the St. Lawrence River, in fact, at the, uh, where the two rivers meet. Uh, and uh, it's, it's, going away, it's going forward right, right now, and the, the government hasn't accepted everything, but they, they've talked about it and they've been saying that they're in favor of it hmm. if it's done well. So I think there are possibilities and it's, I think that you, we should go back to the drawing board and find new places to build it and uh, make sure that we have the support of all the communities along the way and I think it's possible to do it. Well, certainly the numbers are there, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Monsieur Legault would probably be able to take that to Quebecers, maybe even the Conservative Party of Canada in the next federal election. I believe so. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, there's been, historically, there's been a, uh, an alliance between Quebec and, uh, and Alberta in the past when uh, uh, Trudeau uh, uh, Père uh, uh, wanted to centralize the powers. Uh, well, uh, Peter Lougheed uh, found uh, an ally in, uh, in, uh, in the Premier of Quebec at that time. I remember. So I think it's possible to rebuild this alliance. Uh, made of premiers who don't want encroachments of the federal government in uh, in, fe- in uh, provincial matters. Yeah, and there's already some of that happening between uh, Premier Legault and Premier Kenny. I believe so. I, be- I believe that Premier Kenny um, has to be patient with Mr. Legault. He has to uh, to, to nudge him, and I think that, uh, that all the people in the uh, resource uh, uh, industry have to be. Uh, mindful that it's more difficult now to build uh, infrastructure, and so you really need very, very good projects, well thought, in fact, before you proceed. But you do have a majority of Quebecers who are on side to begin with. So give, provide the proper parameters, and they'd and they'd and they'd vote for it. Most more than likely, Germain. Great to talk to you again. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and uh, happy holidays. And to you, Germain Belzile, from the Montreal Economic Institute. Okay, so. A majority of Quebecers would prefer to have oil produced in their own province, but that's not in the cards, really. So take that out of the equation. What do they want? They want oils, oil from Western Canada. This isn't the politicians. This is the folks, the people. 65% of them prefer oil imported into Quebec to come from Western Canada. And uh, when it comes to transporting oil, almost forty percent, almost fifty percent of Quebecers prefer pipelines over rail or ship, and that is a significant, significantly uh, higher uh, number than is uh, the next number, which is rail, at eleven percent. Forty-eight percent of Canadians are within $200 and not being able to pay their bills.
And 31% of Canadians don't make enough money to cover their bills on a monthly basis. Significant percentage of uh, Canadians get to the end of each month with no money left. And, or, or they're into deeper deficit. So, at what point does homelessness creep into your life? If you suddenly find yourself unable to afford your apartment or home. We had a call from, uh, from a listener who um, told us that for the first time she was not going to be able to pay her mortgage and she had kids. Uh, I, I remember that call and it, every time I think about it, it disturbs me. And how does life change most when you become homeless? Where do you sleep? For how long? How many belongings do you maintain? Where do you eat? Are you treated differently? What happens to self-esteem? Do you get services reasonably, predictably, and efficiently, like health care? How does everything change if you become a homeless person? So I've been aware of my uh, guest for a couple of years now. Um, and uh, he's on Twitter uh, a lot. And he follows the show, and we've more or less exchanged uh, opinions on on Twitter and I, I value what I see from him. He's a very reasonable, thoughtful person. So I was shocked when I found out a week ago that he'd been homeless for a year and a half because I had no idea. There was no clue. There was nothing in his tweets or anything that l- led me to, su- to even begin to surmise that he was in any difficulty. So I've been in touch with him, and uh, he joins us on the show now from London, Ontario. It's okay if I use your first and last name, eh, Reinhard? Oh, absolutely right. Reinhard Gauss. Uh, and what's your can, can can we what's your Twitter handle? Um, it's uh, Reinhardt G. So R E I N A H A R T G. Absolutely. Because right. I know I know people I know people follow you I know people listen to you I know people value what you tweet you're a very thoughtful guy. So so what happened? I I, I read a story about you, and 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 what I gather was you were you had an apartment. And the rent went up, as it happens for so many people in this country, and you found yourself unable to meet the new rent, and you figured, well, that's okay. I'll be able to go and find a new place. Is that how it started? That's exactly what happened. And I'll tell you, it was an eye-opener. The apartment I lived in, it was already, you know, pretty pricey it was. And and I had to watch every every penny, you know, just to get by every month. And uh, then I thought to myself, you know, Reinhardt, this is crazy. You can't just uh, every day, okay, what am I going to get? What am I not going to get? Um, geez, you know what? I really like to go out for, you know, one beer and go, no, you know what? Yeah. You know, beers are like five bucks a pop now just, you know, for a bottle to go out. So, no. And then, uh, okay, I got to find a place. You know, this is ridiculous. And uh, my lease was coming up. I didn't think anything about it. I mean, you know, we've got uh, almost, you know, half a million people here in London and I see buildings all over the place that are empty. I mean, literally, anywhere you go in the city, downtown, outskirts, suburbs, um, didn't get any of it. I told my I wasn't going to renew my lease, and uh, boom, then it started. Let me ask you a quick question. Let me let me ask you a question. Are you on speakerphone? Uh, yeah, I am. Can you take it off speaker, please? Because it's causing a bit of a problem with us getting a signal properly from you. Yeah, we'll be able to hear you better. So, 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 I'm sorry. Let's hear you now. Go ahead, Reinhard. Were you able to hear me? Yeah, we hear you, but much better now. So, so you, you decided that the apartment was too expensive given all of the other costs that were involved in getting through your day and through your life. And you figured, well, I'll, you know, the lease is over. I'll go find another place. And and then what? And you said, then it all broke loose. What happened? Um, informed uh, them that I was going to renew my lease, and uh, I started looking for an apartment. And in two weeks, I couldn't find anything. Everything else started at $1,000. So then I contacted, uh, you know, I got a little panicky, because I was up, you know, night and day looking for a place, and everything else was coming in at minimum $1,000. So I got a hold of uh, my landlord, and I said, you know what, um, <laughs> how about I renew the lease? And they went, nope, it's gone. Just you know, they they already had somebody set up for it at that price. Okay. And uh, the rest, uh, pretty well history, Roy. Uh, you just cannot find an affordable place. It just it can't be done. 
So you've got stuff, right? I mean, you had an apartment, so you had things. You had belongings. You were planning on moving to another apartment. Your life was going to continue, but in a different area at, at less expense for your accommodation. Now you don't have a place to live. What happens with your belongings? How do, what are the changes that happen instantly? What happened in the first three days? Well, the first thing okay was getting my belongings in storage. Um, of course, you know, that costs money, too. And then as, you know, as, you, as you go down, you know, week after week, can't keep on paying the storage. Uh, you need money, all right, uh, that person, uh, I would, you know, try and get a motel. You know, that costs money. So eventually, all right, um, I had to get rid of my stuff. I had nothing, so I had nothing. Like literally nothing except for the, the clothes I had on me. And where did you sleep? I'm sorry? Where did you sleep? Uh, I stayed with a, a friend, you know, for a week. Then I would stay in the motel, and then it just got paid. That's it, you know, there's just a... Uh, no, no place to stay in with survival, so it's you know, on the street. Let's get, get back to uh, Reinhard Gauss in, uh, in London, Ontario. Sorry, we're doing the best we can with technology. Sometimes phones just don't, uh, don't help us out, but we'll do the best we can. Reinhard was living homeless for a year and a half. So F, uh, the first 72 hours, it must be just an, uh, uh, an emotional jumble that you're in. You don't no longer have your own home. You're living in motels. You're trying to stay with friends. You're trying to adjust to, to, to life without an address. Uh, it has to just be an emotional roller coaster ride. It, 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 it was right. It, um, kind of a shock. Yeah, for sure. And um, then I realized, okay, hey, get it together. All right. And uh, I thought, all right. A friend of mine contacted me and said, hey, you know, right here, you can't just stay on the street. He said, uh, there's a place called the Men's Mission. All right, and stay there. And he actually picked me up. All right. Told him, okay, where to get me. And uh, it's quite shocked to see me. But we, how about the mission? That, my friend, is the biggest mistake I ever made in my life. And I've made some big mistakes. That is, I stayed there for eight months. It was horrendous, heinous. I can't, the rest of the words I want to say, okay, I can't say on the radio. Okay, so, so it's, it's not... It's not what you expected. It's not where you wanted to be, um, but you were there for eight months. Now, let me let me ask you some things about what life consists of. What time of year was this? The, uh, when, it, when it began? When it, when it first, when when it, when it first began? Uh, in September, as a matter of fact. Okay, so you're heading into the colder weather. Um, yeah. What... I mean, how do you live on a on a day to day basis? Let's talk about some some things that we take for granted. People go out and buy groceries, and then they they go home and they cook a meal. People, uh, if you're not feeling well, you you get you go to a doctor. Um, you jump in your car, you go somewhere. You get on a bus, you go somewhere. You can do these things, but you're doing it without a place to call your own, without a home. And somebody asks you for an address, what do you tell them? Um, I actually used uh, my late parents' old address because um, without an address, you're finished. <laughs> Even worse. Um, as far as the daytime went, especially at that time of year, it was, I remember it was a real hot summer. Mm-hmm. So I would get bus fare and I would get on the bus in the morning and stay. Except when I had to go to the bathroom and stay on the bus. It was air conditioned. Bus drivers never said anything. They didn't say, hey, you know, get off. Uh, I made sure I didn't fall asleep because I fell asleep. Of course, I'd have to get off. You can't stay on a bus, you know, 12 hours. But um, you get the hang of things like that. Bus stations, even train stations, um, buses themselves get important. I use that more often, the bus. You know, how, does, how does that feel? How do you feel while this is going on, while this is happening to you? And you know, the word self-esteem is used over, or the two words self-esteem, I've, with a hyphen, are used over and over. What happens to self-esteem? Anything? I felt like a failure myself. You know, I really felt like a failure. When, you know, this, you of all people, you know, me. Yeah. And uh, How could I let this happen to me? Yeah, exactly. And then um, you get angry. You know, you, you get really angry. 
Who you get angry at? Uh, first, I got angry at uh, the city. You know, because um, but this time I am seeing other homeless people. You know, for the first time in a different light, and speaking to me, and uh, you say, you know, how the hell can you let this happen? This is Canada. This is London, Ontario, Canada. This does not happen here. And my parents left Europe because of this. And they grabbed me and my, and my late brother. Yeah. And here I am doing that. And I went, uh, he, that's what I was angry at. Did you have any any prospects, any sense of, you know, this is going to end in the next month or the next three or four weeks? Or I'm going to find an apartment. I'm still looking. Uh, was, there, was there hope? Or is it at some point... Do, 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 you, do you give up hope? I don't know how much disposable money you've got at this point uh, of your experience with homelessness, Reinhard. Uh, is, is there hope? Do you, do you feel like things are going to improve, or does it get to the point where you kind of just no, reach no, for the white uh, flag? It, it got worse. It got worse uh, day after day. When you're constantly uh, looking for a place, yeah. and you're finding not only nothing, but it even gets worse. You know, which, what is available? Is even more expensive. Do people want to rent to you if they know you're homeless? No, I found that out. No, they do not. They don't come out and say it, obviously, but uh, they make sure okay that you don't get it. No, ab- no, absolutely not. Um, what I have found, and I can say this because it's not my opinion. You, you can go to any time of day and any one of the newspapers anywhere you want. Um, everything that seems to be available here in London for rental. It's all geared to uh, students. I mean, everything from complete houses to apartments. It's all geared for students, and they come out and say it's students only. So and you're so you, so you're out of luck. You're out of Sorry? luck. You're out of luck at that point. You're, you're, oh yeah. And the, how many months have gone gone by now? That'd be about three months now. Okay. Um, three months now. Boy, uh, let me let me ask you about some of the people that you met who were homeless because, you know, I, I, I keep hearing politicians say you shouldn't give help out people who have a hold up a sign that say they're homeless. They need if you can if you can spare some change, help me out. We're not supposed to do that. I do it anyway um, because that's who I am. That's what I like to do. That's what I feel like I want to do. So no, no, nobody's going to stop me from doing that. No politician. Nobody's going to stop me from doing that. It's my money. I'll damn well do what I want with it. Um, and if I can help somebody out directly, then I'm going to do that. Doesn't mean I don't give elsewhere as well. You're so, a good man, Roy. Sorry? You're a good man. Well, I was about to ask you, Reinhardt, what about the people that we see? Who did you meet? Who are the people who are homeless and on the street? People see the homeless people, but they walk, not always. There are some folks who, who really care. There are other people who just walk by them like, geez, you're on my sidewalk. Get out of my way. Who, I, like, I've seen that. And, and. And so who are the people you met? Uh, Roy, um, that's unfortunate, but you're right. Um, the people I met, let me say, they come from all walks of life, male, female, young, old. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's not uh, I've heard so many different ways, okay, how they became homeless. That it was, it's, it's frightening and sad, really sad. Um, everywhere from uh, a guy named uh, Al. He got divorced. It, you know, it was an amicable divorce, but nevertheless, divorced. Um, two uh, two kids. Uh, his wife got the house. Um, he paid alimony. Pay, pays alimony for the children, but to keep his alimony payments up, he, he lost a job. He has to stay on the street. He can't afford to give himself place himself. Yeah. But his priority, okay, is uh. Is he, he still have? Does he still have? Does he? Different ways he end up the street. Okay, you said he lost his job, right? Yeah. Um, you sent me a photograph that I find very found very disturbing. Yeah. And it was a yeah. photograph of an older woman uh, sitting on the sidewalk holding a sign. In downtown uh, London, right? As, the, asking for how? Downtown. So, what what services are? And I, I don't want you to. I mean, just tell us what services are available to uh, to, to somebody who's homeless. Um, are the services there and people don't want it? Homeless people don't want to take advantage of them, or are the services simply not there as in to meet yes, the to meet the needs? Not here, not, not even close to enough, Roy. 
I mean, you're going to, I have met guys, okay, um, and a couple of girls that don't mind being homeless. They, you know, they, they do it. But we're talking about a few here, mm-hmm. you know. The vast majority by far, um, just, you know, so many different things happen. But no, the, there's no services. You can find a place, uh, an odd church in that, that that'll throw a, a dinner. And, of course, they uh, will announce on on uh, online or on Twitter or and that. But the, most of the homeless people, okay, they, they don't know that a free dinner is being served at a church or something like that because they have no place to read this. Let me let me ask you to do this. I want you to. We were going to end the segment here, but I want to spend a few more minutes with you because I have more questions for you. Are you okay with that? Oh, I'm fine with it, Roy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And then I want to take some phone calls from our listeners who may find themselves in a similar predicament to you to what you found yourself in. Um, just hang on, Reinhardt. We're going to come back with Reinhardt Gauss in London, Ontario, for a few minutes longer. The issue of people running on uh, on empty, as far as uh, money and finances and the ability to fund their own life is concerned. Uh, back to Reinhard Gaussen, London, Ontario. Reinhard, just a couple of more minutes with you on this. Um, and so when it came to you getting services, um, you know, like health care or needing some proper customer service or, you know, the things that we take for granted, are you? do people treat you differently? Do people look at you differently? Do, do you feel like there's a... There's a different attitude towards you, maybe because of the way you look, you dress, or just people make assumptions about you? Oh, yeah, Roy. It's, it, 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 it's really sad. It, it, it really is. Um, I couldn't believe it. I, I really couldn't, couldn't believe it. And this, um, and this went on for 18 months? It certainly did. Now, how, what happened? How did you, I mean, you've got your own place now. You've had it for a week. What happened? How'd you well, get it? Roy? Uh, this is still where I'm trying to figure out myself, but I thought about this. I haven't stopped thinking about this, believe me. Because, you know, talk about an about face. This is, this is a total about face. Uh, <laughs> I I truly believe, and I will find out, that it's because of people like you and others that I know. And I think they want to help me and go another way to help me so I wouldn't rock a boat. I wouldn't do something like that. Yeah, but I didn't know anything about you. Yeah, but Roy, they know, okay, that uh, we follow each other. Um, I've spoken about you and come listen to your show because, you you know, Roy, you're great. I've always admired you. You're a straight shooter. You're not afraid of anybody. You speak your mind. Well, thank you, Reinhardt. But technically, what happened? What did the system do for you? How did you get the apartment? They got, Roy, I was... In the mission of renting a room, right. All of a sudden, there was a knock at the door. Seriously, right. Opened it up because you know nobody knocks at the doors. And uh, there was a man standing there, and he said, "Come with me." Uh-huh. Next thing I know, I'm in his office, and he said, uh, "There's some apartments," uh, and he showed them to me, and we're in King Edward Ave here in London, and they're not kind of apartments anybody should be in. Believe me, I know them quite well. And he said, "We can get you in that." And, I went, you know what, it beats the heck out of us, nothing, right? So I said, let's go for it. He said, I'll pick up tomorrow. We'll go look at it. Fine. Right. He picks me up. And then he says to me, okay, I'm going to make one stop before we go there. You know, fine. Yeah. We end up in this in, in, in this office, in these luxury apartments. And the next thing I know, I've got a small one bedroom in this luxury apartment. In a luxury apartment? Yeah. For the For the same amount of money that you had the first apartment for? Uh, I mean, what did they do for you? A heck of a lot less, Roy. Really? Well, that's fantastic. A so now, lot less. So now you have your own place. Yes. And how does that feel to be back in your own home, giving an address, living your life the way you used to live it? How does it feel? Roy, I'm going to be honest. It is scary. Um, when I go to bed, yes, I have a bed. <laughs> I have a bed in the bedroom. Uh-huh. But as soon as you go in there and you lay in that bed, it's comfortable and it's grateful. All right, as anybody can be. Right. You you, you go. This thing, this is not real. It's going to be gone. It's a dream. Yeah. So you have to wait until you pass out. Um, and when you wake up, it's you're in a strange world. Because, right. You know why? I can go to the tap and get a glass of water. I can go yeah. to the bathroom. Yeah. I can go to the bathroom, and Roy, 
that is so priceless to walk into your own bathroom. It's amazing, eh? It's, I mean, we we take we take we take so much for granted, and then things oh, things happen. Oh, they happen to you. Let me ask you one more. Let me ask you one. Let me ask you one more question. Certainly. Can you tell us how old you are? Yeah, I'm uh, turned sixty-five. <laughs> I'm a senior. So at sixty-three, you were homeless. Exactly. For a year and a half. And you ha- and you still know people who are out there, living the oh, streets, yes. heading toward Christmas, I, uh, living on the streets. I promised myself, okay, that um, I'm going to do all that I can, knowing what I know now, uh, and how it all works. Um, there's there's no reason for this, none whatsoever. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the air, and sharing your story with us, sharing your experience with us. And I want but, to thank you, okay, for having me. Well, no, it's uh, it's going to make a big difference, right? It was great to talk to you, and I and I know that I I hope people understand when they see somebody who's homeless, this is not somebody uh, you know they, this is not by choice. Um, uh, and I want to thank you, okay, that you do give a homeless person that you see in the street uh, money, toss some money, and believe me, they are grateful. All right, Reinhardt. Thank you for spending the time with us. All the very best to you. I'm so glad you have your own place. Have a wonderful Christmas. You as well, Roy. Thanks. Take care, Bye-bye. my friend. Reinhardt Gauss in London. At Reinhardt G on Twitter. Andrew Scheer, soon to be the former leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. And I've been reading a lot of commentaries about Mr. Scheer's departure and uh, some of them from people who I quite like and like to read their commentaries. I don't necessarily know them personally. But I just feel like I've been reading um, a lot of... It, It wasn't done kindly enough. It wasn't done softly enough. This is politics. It's a blood sport. And a federal election is critical not only to the party, but also to the country. And if you can't win at the federal election level, with everything that was in place for Mr. Scheer, I'm curious what my guest has to say about this, but if you can't win with everything that was in place The table was set for Justin Trudeau and the Liberals to be defeated. And the Conservatives did not take advantage of what was there for them. And as I wrote in my editorial piece at RoyGreenShow.com, you can read it there, and there's a link on at the Roy Green Show on Twitter. Claiming moral victory doesn't work. It's like saying, well, I shot the puck past the goalie, but if it ricochets harmlessly off the crossbar... It doesn't count. And if you're on the losing end of a 6-5 to five score in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Final, if you're skating around the ice claiming, again, moral victory because you outshot the other team while they're hoisting the Stanley Cup, it doesn't work. And so I, I felt that the, this situation with uh, Andrew Shear departing was going to happen and was going to happen quickly. It did happen quickly. The circumstances may be a little bit on the unusual side, uh, but it was going to happen. And now the party has to move forward. And later on in the show, we'll be speaking with the former premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, about um, what the party's likely to do. And Mr. Wall's already said that he is not interested in, in running for the leadership. I'm, I'm going to ask him that question again. I have to. But uh, there's, there's a lot ahead for the Conservative Party of Canada And I was also wondering, and I tweeted this out this morning, after the conservatives decide on their next leader, is there going to be um, a temptation for the liberals, perhaps with the assistance of the New Democrats, to engineer a very quick snap federal election before the new leader of the conservative party has an opportunity to really connect with the people of Canada as the new leader? Jean Chrétien did that in 2000. Uh, three years into the mandate, and he had, an ex- had a very strong mandate after 1997. Uh, but Stockwell Day was the new leader of the Canadian Alliance, and before Stockwell Day could gain traction with voters, and really to disarm Paul Martin, who was at the head of the rebellion inside the Liberal Party, which would eventually get rid of Chrétien. But before any of that could happen, Chrétien called an election and won another majority government and was able to solidify his power. Michael Taub is syndicated columnist with Troy Media, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter 
for Stephen Harper. Always enjoy talking to Michael. He joins us on the show to kick things off. Michael, good to have you with us. And uh, what about the departure of, 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 of Andrew Shear? How are you viewing this? How are you interpreting what's going on? Yeah, thanks, Roy. Um, I look at it a little differently than you, although I don't disagree with many of the points that you made. I felt that, and I guess I'm more of a traditionalist than some, I've always believed that a political leader, a party leader, has two kicks of the can to actually take power or not take power, which means the ability to run two, two elections. And if that person is unable to win after two times, he or she should go. And there's no question of it, and there shouldn't be any arguments whatsoever. And I felt that Andrew Scheer had done enough. He had The party had increased by 26 seats from the previous election, that being 2015 to 2019, they had won the popular vote, which is sort of the quote from your piece, is a moral victory more than anything else. Under our first-past-the-post system, obviously it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't change what happened. It doesn't change the results. But I felt that he had done enough, and especially by bringing the Liberals down from a majority to a minority government, enough to run a second time out. And I'm not surprised by what happened. I'm not surprised by the frustration a lot of conservatives felt. Historically, we like to eat our own. That is, unfortunately, a trait of this movement. It exists, whether we like to admit it or not. And it's fine. It's something that you obviously have to deal with. And I felt that Andrew Scheer had just done enough to survive. But the decision has been made. There's no point continuing to reflect on what happened. I think that the circumstances behind it, or at least what some people believe is either the, the reason or the rationale behind it, the public reason that he gave, as you know, in Parliament, is that he felt that he couldn't give 100% of the job, he wanted to spend more time with his family, etc. And that may have been certainly a contributing factor. And then other people talked about this little mini-scandal that Mercedes Stevenson of Global, T- of Global News and others have now since reported, which suggested that it may have had to do with the fact that the party had given him some money, which was used to, for private school funding for his children which I must say to you is pretty above board to me, Roy, even if it doesn't look good overall, because lots of leaders use money or loans from their parties for moving expenses, travel expenses, and various other things. I think the problem that the conservative fund had with it, or the people associated with the fund, the directors, was that some of them didn't know what the money was specifically being used for. So I get their frustration from that standpoint. But overall, the decision has been made, Mr. Scheer, has stepped down. He will officially leave as party leader on or before the next April leadership review, unless something changes in the next few weeks. And then we go on to sort of pick a new leader, possibly a new direction, and hopefully a new perspective for this party that can lead us back to power within two to three years' time. I just want to say one more thing about about what you said about Mr. Scheer and uh, and having uh, two kicks at the can. I wouldn't normally subscribe to that, Michael, mm-hmm. but these were really extraordinary circumstances. You had a, a, a prime minister who was so terribly compromised personally and professionally. Sure. The table was set for Justin Trudeau to be defeated, and they, the effort was not commensurate with what was available. And it just seemed to be that to me that the campaign was stuttering along, and Andrew Scheer had the opportunity very early on to, uh, to take charge. And, and he didn't. One of my first shows about Andrew Scheer was to say, where are you? Where are, I mean, I talked to him many times. He seems like a very likable guy. He is. Very likable guy. Decent man. But this is politics. And this is election time. And this election, Michael, ha- had components to it that I don't remember another election having. I don't remember a prime minister, a sitting prime minister, who's been in for one term, yep. being so incredibly compromised as, as compromised as Trudeau was, it was there for the taking. They didn't take it. I think he deserved to go. I understand your point, and I, and I don't disagree with a lot of what you said, Roy. Um, the only way I would look at it is this. Remember, at the beginning of this year, as we're nearing the end, we're just a few weeks away, a few days away from Christmas, near the end of the year as well, no one expected the Conservatives to be competitive in the 2019 federal election. But due to NSC Lavlin, due to the blackface and brownface controversy and various other things, even the Two Plains controversy, which a lot of people forget about, it, but it was certainly there, and also the ineptness that we saw with Justin Trudeau via his relations with Jody Wilson-Raybould and others, you're right. It was certainly, he seemed right for the picking and the election seemed there for the taking. But all in all, the irony is that some of these things that really would have knocked down most prime ministers that you and I certainly have seen in our lifetimes, 
and that goes for conservatives and liberals alike. For whatever reason, it just did not Justin Trudeau off his perch. The blackface, brownface controversy alone would have basically eradicated most prime ministers, certainly of my lifetime, and yet this mediocrity we have in office, and with, you know, I'm not going to be respectful about it. He really is one of the most ineffective and mediocre leaders we've ever had in this country in our long history. He survived it because, unfortunately, of the stumbling and fumbling that the other political leaders did, including Andrew Scheer. Mm. So if Scheer had avoided some of these pitfalls from, you know, his real position in the insurance industry, his dual citizenship in the United States, and obviously the, the attacks he got for his social conservative views, which I don't think were very fair, but that unfortunately was part of the puzzle, he didn't handle it with authority. And if he had handled it in a stronger fashion, with a more authoritative voice, Pronounce, you know, pronouncement in terms of what he believes in, but separating his own personal views from the party views. If he had made that clear distinction, I think a lot of this could have gone under, off the shelf, and I think that he actually would have had a much stronger chance of winning. But hindsight is twenty twenty, as we know, and again, I stand by my position. He didn't do brilliantly in this election by any means, but he did well enough that I thought he deserved one more chance at it. But obviously, conservatives have decided otherwise. Well, you know, we, you and I will agree to disagree in, uh, on this one, sure. but we'll still remain friends. I hope so. <laughs> I don't see any reason why uh, not. Un- un- unless you don't think we can. Well, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think you do either. No, I absolutely hope. not. I always love talking to you. And, and again, Trudeau was there for the taking, and it was the opportunity. The, the opportunity was right there, and it didn't happen. And, and what happened after that is, is, is clearly, uh, uh, I mean, it's, it was unavoidable. Now, uh, I think... Now, Michael, let me take a break. We'll come back, and I want to ask you about how the party has to move forward now, because whoever the next leader is, it has to be the right person to be leader. And what worries me, and it, it has this affects every political party, they can go through a whole series of elimination votes, and then you wind up with a compromise candidate who was never going to be the first choice, and inevitably and invariably puts the party into difficult circumstances. It's happened to the liberals. It certainly happened to the conservatives. And the conservatives have to be sure that they, this doesn't happen to them again. Uh, back to my good friend Michael Taub on uh, the situation with the Conservative Party of Canada. And as well, I want to talk to Michael for about his thoughts on Justin Trudeau's virtual abdication as he has handed over what appears to be power to Christian Freeland. She's now, the, of course, the deputy prime minister with responsibilities for every major initiative that the government is involved in. Michael is syndicated columnist with Troy Media, contributor to the Washington Times, and former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Let me just ask you, Michael, sure. how do you see this now, the selection of the, of the leader of the Conservative Party going forward? How do they make sure? And could they have party rules and they have different, there are different factions within the conservative reality in Canada? How do you make sure that you really get the, the right person in that position to lead the party going forward? Well, it's a difficult balancing act, and there are a lot of different groups under in the conservative umbrella, from <clears throat> red Tories, blue Tories, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, libertarians, right-leaning independents, and on and on. There's so many different factions. Uh, but the key is someone has to act as a uniter. It has to be a person with a strong personality, solid leadership skills, an ability to communicate, and, and, and good messaging, and as well, a solid policy platform. If you can get all those things together in a tidy little box, you're going to move forward and you'll be successful. The problem here is this is going to be one of the more important processes we've ever seen, or one of the most important leadership races we've seen, at least in the young Conservative Party of Canada's history, because this faction has only been around since 2003, but certainly in the, in the grander schemes, the, the history of small-c conservatism or, con- or the conservative movement in Canada, it's very, very crucial that someone is picked here because all the groups are now chomping at the bit very, very hard and want to take control. The Red Tories, or lean- left-leaning conservatives, have been sort of out of power for a good 20 to 25 years. They want to get one of their people in, even though there aren't as in this country as there were many years ago. Blue Tories, who are the biggest part of the faction and have basically governed appropriately or had control for the most part, Party Canadian Alliance and the Conservative Party, they want to obviously maintain some semblance of power. And plus, there are a lot of other groups that are going to be sort of, as I said, chomping at the bit and want to have influence. 
so it makes it very difficult, especially when you hear leadership contenders who are being proposed, none of, no one has declared yet, such as a Peter McKay or a Rona Ambrose or a Lisa Raitt, or, you know, even though he's decided not to, a Brad Wall and various others, all those names have different ideas and different ideologies and different leadership styles. But the real key is they have to make sure that they can get a sizable amount of the base behind them, but also have the appeal beyond that, which means that they have to appeal to the Canadian public who were turned off by some of the aspects that Andrew Scheer performed when he was leader of the Conservative Party. And I still think, Roy, that the best model to use is Stephen Harper's model of incremental conservatism, which is not a fast-paced conservatism, but conservative values that intrigue the party base and would also intrigue the average Canadian from small government, lower taxes, more individual rights and freedoms, and policies that are like tuition tax credits or, or basic tax relief that will benefit households. Mm-hmm. If you can get someone who can sort of unite those things together or create most of that in a package, he or she will be successful. Yeah. The key is someone's got to do it. And affordability should never be uh, <laughs> dismissed because we're finding out we're the story of 48% of Canadians being within 200 bucks and not being able to pay their bills. Yeah. We're finding out what affordability really is about. We've heard some amazing and very disturbing stories on the air. Uh, Michael, we have about 45 seconds, actually less than that. Okay. Uh, Justin Trudeau handing off power. Is he, is, he, is he resigning? Is he abdicating? What's going on? It's a pretty early retirement after one term. I've never seen anybody give away <laughs> is he being so much pushed? power. Is he Basically, being pushed? I don't know what Justin's going to do in office. I really don't know. Yeah. Unless he's going to keep rearranging his closet and his costumes. He has nothing <laughs> left, Roy. I know. He's given... He's given Christia Freeland, who obviously, even I don't ideologically, she's different than you, I, and many of the listeners, but she's certainly competent. He's given her everything. Yes. So basically, the success or failure of this minority government really isn't going to be Justin Trudeau's. It's going to be Christia Freeland and right. the way she manages things. But I think it's rather embarrassing, and I think that many people, if they had had their vote over again, would not have supported Justin Trudeau if they right. knew he was going to basically, as you said, quote-unquote, abdicate Michael, all his power. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Good conversation. We'll do it again. You betcha. Take care. Bye-bye. Michael Taub, syndicate economist for Troy Media. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.